And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. One of the most powerful voices in the black community of Chicago on issues of violence and guns and um, all the challenges that those communities face happens to be a white man, uh, Father Michael Flager, uh, who is the uh, pastor of St. Sabina Church on the south side of Chicago and has been for 40 years, uh, is a leader in the anti-violence movement uh, in Chicago, uh, outspoken, controversial, uh, but passionate and interesting, uh, as you can hear for yourself. Father Michael Flager, old friend. Yes, sir. Welcome. Uh, You know, I I often tell this story that back in 2004, when I was working for a young state senator named Barack (laughs) Obama, who was running for the U.S. Senate, uh, we wanted to put voices on uh, on urban radio mm-hmm. uh, to reach the black community because uh, we needed to galvanize that vote. And I uh, we did a poll, and we polled uh, all, all these leading figures in the community. And who should pop up to the top as the most popular person, loved by everyone, no negatives, was Mike Flager. And a white guy from the southwest <laughs> side of Chicago, uh, and um, we'll get into why during this conversation. But I wanted to start by asking you how many uh, how many uh, black people lived in your neighborhood when you were growing up? Zero. <laughs> I mean, I grew up in the southwest uh, side, a very um, inbred sort of um, very white. A lot of police, firemen, um, middle class, uh, Catholic, uh, primarily Irish community on the southwest side of Chicago. And um, really the only first African-American person I ever even had a contact with was the lady who worked at the church office um, as a cook. And um, Mary Betts had a, the first impact on my life, but a strong impact as a child growing up. You, um, you always wanted to be a priest. You always wanted to go into... The priesthood. I always had thought about it. it was always something on my mind, just because my mother worked at the church office. Uh, priests came over the house a lot, and it was it was a something I always had in the back of my mind. But I think what really um, what really kind of seasoned it out for me, if you will, is in after junior year high school, um, when I saw out of curiosity myself and two of my friends riding over to Marquette Park, and saw Dr. King marching there and fifty years ago. Why did you go down there? Because I'd heard so much negativity in my neighborhood about Dr. King and what he said he was trying to move blacks into the white community. And, uh, and it was did your parents there. talk about it? Uh, yeah. Well, you know, my, it's funny. My parents uh, were strange, uh, very outspoken people. Who never allowed that, the, that doesn't actually seem that strange <laughs> to me, knowing you. But that's too much of a surprise. Huh? <laughs> but they never, uh, they never allowed the F word or the N word in our house, hmm. and um, and which were both common by everybody on, on, that I grew up with in the Southwest Side. So it was curiosity, really. I we should just set the scene. This was mm-hmm. fifty years ago, right. uh, almost to the day. Yeah, uh, exactly. I just went for the reenactment of the march on on August sixth. Dr. King came to Chicago, uh, and uh, he was uh, here to um, confront the issue of housing discrimination mm-hmm. in Chicago. And he marched uh, at Marquette Park. Uh, and that was at a time when uh, these communities, there was a hard, oh. hard border between uh, communities on the south side of Chicago where African Americans lived, and the white communities of the southwest side. And there was real tension over the notion that these communities should be integrated. And that was the backdrop. Right. Um, so there was a freneticism yeah. to what was going on uh, back then. Yeah, and it was, um, yeah, it was very loud, very determined, very angry, and I knew if I asked my parents, they'd never let me. But I asked two of my friends to ride their bikes with me, and 
the first thing that was so awake to me, we rode down Western 71st Street, down 71st Street to California, and passing on 71st and Rockwell, the Nazi headquarters, which mm. I never knew was there. And years later, I asked my parents about that, and they said, well, we never rode by there because we never wanted you or your sister to see it. Um, so all this Nazi, you know, swastika and, and, and go home. and so uh, interesting because I would guess that there were, at that time, lots of veterans on the southwest side who fought the Nazis. Yeah. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, there, my my father came out of World War II, and a lot of a lot of people in the community there were were veterans. And um, here is this Nazi headquarters, but the interest and the acceptance of it was that they were there to make sure African Americans did not come further west and into the white community. Um, and they and they were kind of like a you know not, maybe not a a wonderfully liked group, but they served a purpose mm -hmm. for the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And then we you know rolled on into Marquette Park and you know saw people I knew there. I saw a parent of one of my friends. I saw somebody I went to our church uh, lived in my neighborhood, and I you know was just like I was frightened. What were they doing? Screaming, racial slurs, rock throwing, bottle throwing. One group was trying to turn over a car. Um, it was just, I, I was frightened at first. In fact, it's, it's crazy because we almost turned around and left because it was so frightening to see all this. I never seen hate like that. I never saw anger like this. Um, but I think my curiosity you know, won my fear at that point. I wanted to see this guy King that I, everybody had been talking about. And, let, me, let me stop you for a second mm -hmm. before you get to Dr. Sure. King. You and I have talked about this before, mm -hmm. uh, but the the sort of paradox of people who kneeled in the pews with you on Sunday uh, in the park uh, shouting racial epithets, uh, did that, as a 13-year-old, how did you process that? Well, I think at first I felt like, well... They were two different things, but I think as I continued to read and study more of Dr. King and his particular his challenge to the churches, I began to wonder. I remember asking one of the priests at our church, "How come we never talk about this in our pulpit, in our church? I never hear anything about this." And um, he really just kind of dismissed me mm -hmm. that you know this. We were here to talk about God. <laughs> How would it be received if a priest at that oh, time. Oh, he'd have been booed out. There's mm -hmm. no question about it. Um, and I think, unfortunately, that's true so often today. You know, the same thing. I mean, let's face it, a whole lot of of uh, police and fire people are Catholics. Catholic is a, is a predominant, you know, uh, religion in America. And not only that, the Catholic Church, you know, certainly sadly, on the southwest side of Chicago. Yeah, and certainly on the southwest of Chicago, but also a pivotal figure in the segregation in Chicago. And I say that because when I was growing up, there was the Italian Church, there was the German Church, there was the Irish Church. Um, every little group had their own church, so all these churches were built so close to each other. Mm -hmm. So. That was just the way it was done in the in the early days. So now, when all those churches became those segregated churches continued, um, we have also, I think, an obligation. We help create this segregation. We have an obligation to do away with it. But unfortunately, the church has been way too silent. So, doctor. So, to just to return to the mm -hmm. story of Marquette Park. Mm -hmm. uh, so then, what, what, what when? How did Dr. King appear there? Well, so we went over to where we heard the march was coming from, off of Kedzie. And um, when I saw him, he had already been hit by the rock. I didn't even know about. It. I didn't know about that till days later in the news. And what kind of got obsession with me was looking at him and all this hate, the shouting, the screaming on this negativity, and he's never responding to it. You know, he's looking at each other and talking about, you know, we have to learn to live together, and we have to learn to be brothers and sisters. And I'm like, riding away that day, um, all the way home I was silent, because my friends said, what's wrong, what's wrong? And um, I was, I just read, what is it about this man? Either this guy was totally crazy, or he had some kind of strength 
and power that I want to know about. And when people say to me today, why are you a Catholic priest you know, today? It's because of this black Baptist minister in 66, because then I started to read everything he had read up to 66. And then I had a wall in my room where I cut out stuff and put up from the papers um, and realized this guy who decided, you know, he didn't want to be known as a civil rights activist. He wanted to be known as a minister because he used to consistently say that we can make laws and we need to make laws that make lynching and segregation illegal. But laws can't change hearts and the ways we treat each other as brothers and sisters. And that was the job of the faith. And is that what, uh, is that what turned you to uh, more seriously considering the priesthood? No question. I know that I made a conscious decision at the end of senior year to say I, I needed to explore this district. And I happened to, you know, I was Catholic, so I went into the Catholic seminary. Um, but I knew I'd explore. But I also knew I had to stay connected with stuff in the street. People all say, well, how do you, why you weren't staying at the seminary? You got kicked out of the seminary for not staying there enough. And why are you living on the West Side? Because I had to stay in connection with this Dr. King who taught about, you know, this relationship with the community. And so um, that's why I lived in the West Side. That's how I got involved with the Panthers. That's how, you know. Before we get to that, you, um, I, I think I recall you telling me that you made some trip uh, uh, where you had contact with Native Americans. Yes, I spent two summers in uh, first and second year high school, the summers down in uh, Wilberton, Oklahoma. Um, working with Native Americans, and you know, it's also through the church. Or? Yeah, it was through actually through Quigley High School, mm-hmm. and you know, and it was just crazy. When I started to draw the dots years later, and it was years later, I grew up with a sister who was mentally challenged, and I watched her constantly called retarded, laughed at, taken advantage mm-hmm. of, and that was an anger inside of me. I go freshman sophomore high school down to Wilberton, Oklahoma, and with Native American children, the first time I'm there, two weeks we're walking into town to get some ice cream, and there at ice cream shop, the owner says, "You can come in. You're white, but the Indians can't come in." And I called my mother that night and said, "I'm moving down to Oklahoma. It's crazy down here." And told her what happened. She laughed at me on the phone. Said, "Welcome to America, Michael." And um, so I have this experience with my sister. I have the experience with Native Americans. And, and and then I go down to to, to the west side of Chicago after I, because of Dr. King, mm-hmm. and I see all the prejudice and racism that's here in this in this city and in this country. And it wasn't two years later I realized all those dots that they that all that stuff tapped into what I the prejudice I saw against my sister. Dr. King uh, died when you were fifteen. He was killed when you were fifteen. Yeah. What? Um, how did that impact on you? Um, I, 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 I can only describe it in, in my 67-year-old terms is that it was a depression, but I remember I felt like my world came to the end because this was my hero. This was the guy I wanted to, um, to, to grow under, learn under, and I wanted just to spend time with him. I wanted to work with him. You know, I think what saved me in it, David, to be honest, was his wife Coretta took me under her wing. And she she got to learn. So you actually reached out to her? Or? Oh, absolutely! I reached out to to her and to the family, um, and became very close with them. She used to always, you know, call me my is um, my son, and she she realized I think soon on she says your love for my husband is very deep, and I want to open up his life to you as much as I can. And so she let me go through papers and, and stuff mm-hmm. before it went to Emory's and Boston's and arguing in courts. And so, how old was it when you made contact with um, her? I you? was just in the end of, of um, college, uh, the end of graduate school mm-hmm. um, when I first made contact with mm-hmm. her and, um, and kept contact with her up until her death. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, one of the people that spoke at her funeral, but her and the family, in fact, Bernice King, gave the first sermon she ever gave at our church when she was at Spelman. So you, you went into the seminary, but spent time on the, on the West Side. Uh, were you encouraged to do that, or were you discouraged? No, um, it was kind of, we, we were told we can get involved with a, a uh, ministry project, like tutoring at a school. I started out with the tutoring at Precious Blood School, 
and realized this is the place I wanted to be. On the west side. On the west side of Chicago Congress and western on the west side. African-American community. Yeah. Poor African-American Well, it was funny. It was right at the Eisenhower Expressway on the west side of Chicago. And across the bridge was all African-American and Rockwell projects. South of the bridge was a lot of uh, some left Italian that had not moved out of the neighborhood and um, Puerto Rican and Mexican. Um, but my whole ministry became with the African-American community across the bridge. And and Fred Hampton of the Panthers took me under his wing. I used to go pick up bread for the breakfast program for the... Um, and for those, for those of you who don't know, Fred Hampton is a major historical figure in Chicago yeah. uh, history because uh, he was killed. Uh, yeah, him and Mark Clark. In his, in, in, in his bed by a police by officer. police and at the order of Hanrahan, who was the state's attorney at the time. Um, but I realized the reason I got connected with them was, and it's kind of strange because I'm a Dr. King groupie and, and he's total nonviolence and the Panthers right. still believe in violence. But what I looked at in the neighborhood is nobody in that neighborhood was doing more to care for the community than the Panthers. And so I wanted to learn about them and what they were doing. So I helped with the breakfast program then, and actually ended up coming and meeting in our our rectory basement because I asked the pastor there because they were being kicked out of places they could meet there. And they met for two years there before at that time, a Chicago newspaper called the daily news did a story about the Panthers meeting at this church. And the then Cardinal, the archdiocese told the pastor they couldn't meet there anymore. And, uh, when you, when you, uh, uh, left the seminary, when you were, uh, ordained as mm -hmm. a priest, you, um, you asked to be sent into the community. Right. Yeah, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to continue to stay in the African-American community. Um, and um, they gave a couple of different places that had openings that I could look at. And um, I, I guess I, my initial feeling of St. Sabina was is that when I was growing up, many of my parents' friends were... St. Sabina, St. the church that you've led now for yeah. what... 40? 41 years. Yeah. But uh but back when you were a kid, it was a it was very much a white ethnic parish. Yeah, it was very um very strong, well-known church on the south side, primarily Irish congregation. Um interesting history though. Um in the 60s, um when African Americans were moving further west on the south side, Monsignor John McMahon, who was the pastor at um, St. Sabine at the time, he wanted to integrate the parish. He hired Saul Linsky to be hmm. on staff to work for uh, integration. Saul Linsky often talked about it as one of his big failures. He couldn't do it. Right north in the 15th Ward on the south side of Chicago is a priest named Francis Lawler mm -hmm. who was working on segregation. So you had these two priests 15, 20 minutes away from each other, one working on segregation, one working on integration. In fact, Francis Lawler, the priest, got elected yeah, as alderman, an alderman yeah. because an alderman. of his stance on segregation. Yeah. It really speaks to the divisions within, oh, absolutely. within the church. Um, so, but St. Sabina... The neighborhood was changing. By right. the time you got there, what was the... First of all, the parish had dwindled, right? Oh, yeah. It was... When I got there in 75, I'm, only, I'm there about three weeks before I'm told that the church has uh, going to close in sometime in the next three years. There was about 80 people left. There was still a number of white people that came to the it's church. It's a beautiful church. It's oh, a, magnificent like, church. The, you see them all over Chicago, uh, these yeah, great, these great Gothic cathedral. cathedrals. Yeah. yeah, I mean, beautiful, beautiful church. Interesting because the stained glass and the woodwork, which is all hand-carved in that church, was brought in. The church was built in 1933 during the middle of the Depression. Mm. The Catholic Church was shipping in stained glass and hand-carved woodwork from Paris. Um, only the Catholic Church could get by with that. Um, yes, yeah, so it was down to about 80 people. Uh, top floor of the school was closed. The basement of the church was all closed off. Half the, our gym building was all closed off. Um, so we're told we're going to close in about three years. So I'm there now almost six years, and I'm deciding i got to go because the 
pastor and I are hitting heads. I don't want to be at a place that he's just maintaining the clothes. So you were sort of the assistant, the assistant pastor, right? When I first and you came were hitting, he, you were banging heads because you wanted to integrate the congregation. Well, and not only grow up, I wanted to really celebrate because you walked in our church and you thought you were still in the church of the Saint Sabinus from 1940 and 50. Um, and now we have this neighborhood that is all African American. If we're not embracing the community with which now we live, then you know we're going to end up being irrelevant, and we will close. And he was told just to maintain it, and we were, and the, the church was going to close. So I was actually getting ready to leave. Um, I signed a lease on an apartment. I was going to leave right after um, Christmas. Had told my father about it. And were you uh, going to leave the priesthood entirely? No, or? You know, I don't know. I um, I was frustrated, and I I knew that I had to continue to do the work I was doing on the west side, and that I got ordained to do. Um, so I was considering leaving. And then um, um, on November 19th, this, this pastor drops dead of a massive heart attack. Mm. And um, I've signed a lease now, and this small group of people is trying to organize to have me stay there. I'm trying to go buy furniture for my apartment they don't know anything about. Um, but they began to really organize and bring people in from the community. I was seeing the people at meetings with the personnel board that were coming, and I never saw them before in my life. Um, and so, now, were these white people, black people? Uh, both, mm -hmm. both, but primarily black people, though. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the diocese decided, uh, Cardinal Cody at the time, who did not care for me, said, um, I'll he tell you what. He was a pretty autocratic figure. Oh, in the my church. God, yeah. And. Um, uh, he, he just said, well, I'm going to let you stay here until things calm down, and I'm going to make you permanent administrator. And he said, don't make any changes. Um, and I said, what's a permanent administrator? He said, it's a term I created, so it has no canonical uh, hmm. power, and I can remove you as soon as things calm down. Well, a couple other priests... Give him credit for honesty. Oh, yeah. He was very... <laughs> well, scary honest. But once he told me that it's only a matter of time, then I decided that I was going to dig my heels in. Well, you you, you fought a succession of cardinals, uh, some, you know, probably less Cardinal Bernadine. Yeah, but, less kind of, but Cardinal George, definitely. Um, yeah, I'm the only priest in the history of the Archdiocese of Chicago that has been suspended twice. Yeah. Why were you suspended? Well, the first time <laughs> was back in 2008. Oh, yes, I remember that. <laughs> Which you are quite that. aware of. Yes. Yeah. You um, should tell people, because some may not remember, that yeah. you, you gave a provocative speech. <laughs> yes, I was, uh, I was giving a... You know what's so funny? That it's a sermon that I gave. I was asked to come in and speak about racism. Um, and it's actually a, uh, it's almost identical talk i had to be added some new stuff to it as as, as time possesses that i gave the university of chicago um that michelle obama had invited me to come to speak there on racism and um except for the part where you mocked yes Hillary except to the point and you know it was so crazy because um i'm in the pulpit i've been at trinity many many times to speak so i knew the you were at the church of of reverend, reverend Wright, jeremiah Wright. would become yeah. an issue in the campaign uh right than Senator Obama's pastor. Right, exactly. So I'm at that church talking on racism, and I'm invited by uh, Otis Moss, who was the pastor at the mm -hmm. time, to come there. And um, I had just been in a conversation the last two days and read actually an article of a woman who talked about uh, a national syndicated article about Hillary Clinton feeling entitled at that time to the race. So I come in to the pulpit, and it's still in my mind. I'm talking about races, and, I, and I'm in, in my talk, I talk about entitlement. So, of course, I, I go off, and then they make this comment about Hillary. The spirit moved you. Yes. <laughs> As they say. And the, uh, and the person got in the way of the message, and uh, I never denied that. But I said that, um, you know, I felt that she did feel entitled. I felt that she did feel... Um, that it was hers. So because it was because she was white. She was white. I felt she felt she was entitled. She was Bill's wife. And I, I brought up the incident a couple of weeks before I remember she was seen in a I think it was a coffee shop and she was talking about that and she started crying. Right. And everybody thought it was some months before, it was put on yeah. and it was it was a it was a stage thing. Yeah. And I, I said I didn't, by the way. Yeah, I didn't either. I and that's what I said in that 
that talk, I said, I do not think it was put on. I think it was sincere because I think she did feel this was her election. She was white. She was entitled. She was Bill's wife, and this was hers. Now, I I feel moved to ask uh, how you feel now. Um, <laughs> not much different. Um, I mean, I mean, from what I felt in 2008, I feel that there was a... There was two things that bothered me at that time. I think it was one that I did feel that she did feel entitled and that was real to me. The other thing I felt that was, and it was probably more Bill Clinton at the time, but I felt that there was a lot of patronizing being done to Barack Obama and that angered me. You know, I, I, I of course, believed in him. And, yeah, and I, you've been friends for a long Right, time. since he came in and community organized. I believed him and I thought he... Um, was a gifted, talented young man and was supporting him, supporting him for the state senator, supporting him for the U.S. senator, um, and was supporting him for president. And I, I felt But you that, recognize the point you made at the time was not helpful to him. I, I, I understood that later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I understood it when, you know, within hours afterwards, uh, Sean Hannity and, and, um, and uh, O'Reilly and countless others were contacting the church and um uh yeah so, so, so that was your turned. first suspension what was the second the second one was for something um that i said on the cornell west uh to have a smiley show and it was a time when the cardinal was asking me to take over um leo high school as president here's the crazy thing about that they he asked me to reflect on it and tell me what i thought about that i wrote a letter back saying I think it would be a horrible thing. I'm not an educator. Was this to move you out of St. Sabinus? Yes, he was oh, trying okay. to get me out of St. Sabinus. This is Cardinal George. Cardinal George, yes. And he is trying to get me out. He was quite conservative and. Very conservative. And you've he never just, been accused he of that. Felt he had, he had, um, <laughs> he had uh, accused me of heresy before. He, he, he'd been very you, upset you brought, with me. You've brought people to St. Sabina that. The church has found oh. provocative. Al Sharpton, yeah, well, uh, 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 Minister Farrakhan. Minister Farrakhan. Um, we've we've had uh, uh, Mandela's wife. I mean, we've had a number. Rabbi um, Marks had been there earlier. We had brought in a lot of people to the church. Um, that, of course, was very controversial. And but he always felt that I was too far to the left. I wasn't Catholic enough. Um, and and he so he always had a. He was always trying to get me out. Did he ever come to Saint Sabina? He did. <laughs> right after he became cardinal, he came to Saint Sabina's and up in the pulpit and giving a a sermon. And at the end of his sermon, I'm sitting there, and there's this whole congregation there, and he says, "You know, some people asked me when I was coming to Saint Sabina." Uh, and I've come to Chicago, and they said, what are you going to do about Flager? And he said, I have a philosophy. Give somebody enough rope, they'll hang themselves. Huh. And I'm sitting there like, oh, my God. <laughs> His guy just done my death sentence right here in my own pulpit in front of my people. And there was this silence in the church. Yeah. And uh, But I came That's to good realize. That's good because applause would have been disturbing. <laughs> yeah, it would have been. <laughs> I'd have had to get up and leave at that point. <laughs> but. It became clear from that point on his mission was to get me out of St. Sabina. So you said there were 80 people in your, uh, in your parish when you became yeah. the, uh, the pastor in the mid-'70s. Uh, how, many, how many parishioners do you have now? I go by who shows up on a, on a given Sunday. It's about 2,200 in a, in a weekend that comes. But, but David, my philosophy has always been um, that when people say, how many members do you have? I say the community. Mm-hmm. Because I believe if we sit there as a tax-exempt building in Chicago, in a neighborhood, our responsibility is to serve the whole community. So I look at the whole community as my membership. Yeah, I those understand. Those who come to church and who have signed up and belong, I look as this, this, the boot camp but soldiers. But I, I want to talk about the larger ministry in a second. Yeah. The uh, But the thing that's kind of... Uh, remarkable is that you know the, the the church is not thriving in terms of its no. membership and participation you are kind of counter to the trend yeah we've been able to um i 
I believe that one of the reasons that is is that I think people really are looking for the church that is relevant to the times and seeks to make a difference in the community at large. You know, you go back to the civil rights movement with Dr. King and you see the 60s church was very involved. You saw nuns and priests involved yes. and, and Muslims died. and Jews and, and all of it, whether it's Selma, whether it's Montgomery. Yes. And then the church became this very conservative sort of mainstream corporate entity. And I think a lot of people left the church and a lot of young people weren't coming into church because the church was no longer that voice of that prophetic voice of change and relevancy to the world. Do you think Pope Francis is restoring oh, any of that? Oh, God, I think he's the best thing that's happened to the church. Um, I thank God I lived long enough to see Francis come in. I hope somebody's testing his food every day um, because there's a whole element in the Catholic Church, you know, that wants him out and bishops that speak against negative about him all the time. But he's come in, I think, not just... You know, not just brought fresh air. He's he's revived the spirit of what the church is all about, and this care for the poor, this care for justice. This whole tone, instead of being condemning, to be inviting and welcoming and and compassionate. Um, and he he's he's just brought a great great gift of hope to the Catholic. But I think he's also on a on a global figure of putting poverty and how we treat one another on the front burner for the world. You, um, uh, you talked about how you see your ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, you're probably as you're, you're the biggest force in that neighborhood uh, and have been for decades. And uh, you've been involved in economic development in the mm-hmm. community. Uh, and, but you're also well known for your uh, campaign against, uh, against smoking, against drugs, against mm-hmm. violence. Right. Um, Talk about that and how how difficult that has been. I think it's been difficult because of the climate of the world we lived in. When I, when after I became pastor, we had a series of these over the years we call town hall meetings with the community and say, how what's the issues of the community that we need to be focused on? Whether it was from we had liquor stores that were selling to minors and you know, four and five on a block, and uh, we did our whole campaign of um, against selling alcohol to minors. Um, the stores that were just serving the community by high prices and outdated food, we started our operation empowerment to have people from the church trained to go in and inspect all 60 stores in our neighborhood. So we said to the community, tell us what you need and then how we can serve you, and then try to, to work at that in the community. And um, uh, there was a big issue of prostitution that everybody was calling me, you need to have these prostitutes arrested, you need to have the police on this, police on that. And I was part of that until one day I get convicted and said, you know, what did Jesus do with the prostitutes? He didn't call the Pharisees, you know. He he reached out to them and we started our outreach program to, program to the prostitutes, paying for their time and saying how we can help them. And prostitution evaporated and the strip on Racine in literally two months because we reached out and cared for them and offered them alternatives. So the community came with the the needs, and then we said, how are the creative ways we can respond to it? And I think that then we tried to say, how do we spread this beyond our community in Chicago to other neighborhoods, whether it was drug paraphernalia, whether it was the concept of prostitution, whether it was um, bad stores, whether it was alcohol and tobacco targeting minors, whatever it was. And now, of course, the violence, which is the primary issue in Chicago and its country. Yeah. Talk about that. How has that changed over the years? And I know you yourself have been touched by violence in, in the community. Well, I've seen the, the violence continually to growing and um, the impact it was having on, on lives of parishioners, lives of people in my community. In 1998, I lost a foster son to violence. I finishing a wedding at uh, 4 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. And somebody comes running in church and says, Hey, Father Mike, Jarvis just got shot in 79th and Carpenter. And I go running down the street. And he's laying there bleeding from the neck. So I'm talking to him and trying to hold the blood in his neck till the ambulance gets there. Um, that was Saturday afternoon, and he died on Monday morning. Um, that made it very personal to me in a whole new way. Um, I've seen this young man turn his whole life around, 
and now he's how right. old was he when you uh, he was just, he was a uh, about three weeks short of turning 18 when he died. I came, he came How? to me at 16 mm-hmm. um, and actually was put out of his house because he would no longer sell drugs because he turning his life around. Got him in another school, was tutoring. We just watched his whole life change. And a straight bullet of some people running down the street shooting back. It wasn't back. even... It wasn't, wasn't named to him, target. no. That he, happens all the time. All the time. All the time um, where somebody... And, you know, and I... I don't say, you know, well, so many innocent people are shot, but that happens all the time. But I don't want anybody to be shot. Sure. You know, I don't want anybody to be killed. But 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 the 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 reality the, the, of that the, these young people, you know, small children. Uh, we've had twenty seven children under thirteen shot in Chicago since January first. That's on a that's a classroom. A classroom of children shot. Um why why this has obviously escalated. Um, talk about it. You know, people ask me, why is Chicago, why does Chicago have this particular problem? And I know you've probably given that a lot of yeah. thought. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's a real... Because there are other cities that have right. poverty and have right. a lot of the same problem. I think it's a combination of things. I think, um, first of all, there are some of the realities that create the perfect storm. You know, and you look at the nine or ten... Communities where the most of violence takes place in Chicago, you'll see a consistent thing. Double-digit unemployment, um, underperforming or underfunded schools, most people coming back from prison but to those neighborhoods with nothing but a bus card and $20. Um, you'll see the lack of economic development, the lack of options. If Mike Flager is a gangster disciple and says today I want to change my life, where do I go? Do I call 911? We don't have options for them to get out except lock them up. Um, How prevalent are the gangs? Well, very. But I think people have to understand the levels of gangs. You know, when people think of somebody's in, um, you know, Mike Flager or David Axelrod are considered gang members, it can be because you're really heavy into the gang life or it can be because you just live in a certain area. If you live in a certain area in my community, you at Foster Park, you're a stone. You live over there, and uh, and another block in Carpenter, you're a BD. You live over this area, you're a GD. You live over this area, you're a killer ward. You're a vice lord. You're a Smashville. So where you live, you have to be that almost to go home. So you may be on the loose fringe, but you're identified to that because that's how you survive. Very few just leave him alone. He's not nothing because he just lives over here. He goes to school. That doesn't happen so much anymore. How... Uh it seems as if the the, the gang uh, world in Chicago has kind of been fractured, and there are a lot of offshoots. And it, yeah. it seems more anarchy, more like anarchy yeah. than it, it once was when you had some almost when corporate had, structures. Right. Yeah, it was. Very, you know, I always tell people everybody has gangs. You know, churches are gangs, denominations are gangs, Democrats are gangs, Republicans. We're all everybody's born some I, kind I've of. I've been a group. accused of that. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> So I hear. But I think we're all that that organization structure. That's reality in life. What happened with the gangs in Chicago is when you arrested the heads, the gangs, like any other family where the heads are gone, become fractured and all over the place. And that has escalated in a whole new way that now you have 15 and 16-year-olds trying to start their own gang from one block to the next block. Part of the reason, though, I think that's happened is when you have nothing else going for you, you're not in a good school and you're seeing that, you know, you what you want to do, what you want to become, you don't have um, a job, you have a broken home, a broken family, you have a community that looks like a third world country. And when you see this consistent thing, one 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 of the, the brothers on the street put in a real crazy way to me once about a year and a half ago. He said, you know, at one time we all thought we were going to be the next Michael Jordan. And everybody told us, hey, there's only... A few Michael Jordans, you're you're wasting your time thinking you're going to be an NBA player. Then we all thought we were going to be rappers. And he said, well, there's not too many commons and, and Lupe Fiasco. This is not going to happen. He said, but here's one thing everybody can be, is a shooter. And now people's identity comes from what they do on Facebook or what they do on the street. So you get street cred. You get street respect. It may be for a week or two weeks or somebody else shoots somebody or shoots at somebody. And then they're, they're the new person. When you have nothing going for you, your your identity, your self-esteem, your respect on the street comes from the crazy stuff, and a lot of it is violence. 
I took some guys from a gang one day who had this one block that this they were shooting and killing over this block on Marshfield. I picked four guys up. And I said, let's drive down this block. We drive down and we look left and right. And I said, tell me everything you think about. Boarded up house, empty lot, garbage, um, uh, for sale, abandoned building. One of I said, oh, so this is what you're fighting over. I said, come on in the car, I'm going to buy you lunch, but you got to take a ride first. I took him downtown and pulled up in front of City Hall. And I said, get out of the car. And I asked the cop to give me just five minutes. Got him out of the car. I said, see this here? This is City Hall. They're making the decisions about your block. And I said, across the street, that's the state of Illinois. They get money, and they give it to City Hall, and then they make decisions of what's going to happen in your block. I said, this is what you want to fight over. City Hall and the state of Illinois, this is what you want to fight over. Silence all the way back home. We got our McDonald's. <laughs> we go back home, get in the, uh, getting out of the car back in the block, and this one kid opens his mouth and he says to me, I get it. I see what you're saying. I see what you're telling me. I understand. But you've got to understand something, Mike. He says, this may look like garbage. This may look like nothing but abandoned and, and, and throwaway buildings. But this is all we got. So I hold on to what we got. And it was, it was an awakening for me. You know, so you fight over the little you have. And then you, you hold on to that because at least it's something. And so street cred and... and how much, how much uh, is... is- uh, the drug trade mixing in here. Drug is certainly part of it because it's it's the economy where still hires people when nobody can get a job. So the drug trade is real. And Chicago's kind of a cross section. Chicago oh. is a big I think El Chapo, I think eighty percent uh, of his drugs right came, to Chicago. Comes to yeah. Chicago. Chicago has a huge central drugs trade. Um it's also I think a place where you know, you know, we talked earlier about 50 years ago, most of the date of Dr. King talking about segregation. We still have segregation in Chicago. Um, we still have neighborhoods that have been neglected and abandoned in Chicago. And those are just realities. And so it creates... So that, and then you have different today than I've ever seen in my life is the gun issue and the proliferation of guns. We, I, I said Chicago is sort of a... a, a because of its, it's a transportation hub, mm-hmm. it's, a lot of drugs come through. But guns... Uh, is another huge problem in the in the in the community, and it's really um, there are some communities that are like war zones. Oh yeah, exactly war zones. We talk about post traumatic stress people coming back from war. What about post traumatic stress of people who live in war zones? It's a reality. I can go to high school after high school, and now I can go to grammar schools and talk sixth, seventh, eighth grade, and say, how many in here could get a hold of a gun in the next hour? And every place, 90% will raise their hands that they could get a hold of one. Um, guns are are, are are so easy access, are so able for everybody, and it becomes it becomes the the protection on the street. You know, so now one of the brothers will tell me, you know, why why would you carry a gun? Because everybody else got one. I gotta be safe. So and then people are shooting each other where they used to talk or have fist fights. Now they shoot because they figure if you got a gun and I got a gun and we're in an argument, I'm going to pull mine before you pull yours. I'm going to be the last man standing. That's the mentality. And and crazy as it may as it may sound, the the NRA's marketing has done. They've been very successful. People in America on the street or in in middle class think a gun is going to make them safer. They think that even though every statistic says it doesn't. So guns have become the way we handle our business in America, not on the street, and particularly in poor areas. Um, guns make you give you power. They give you um, uh, a sense of respect, and now they become a sense of protection. There are kids who hide guns in bushes on their way to public school, to high school, and pick them up afterwards so they can go home. So they can get because there are metal detectors in the school. Yeah. Let, let me ask you about police. We can't not talk about this because you need you need strong and, and effective policing Absolutely. in these communities because of the very thing we've been talking mm-hmm. about. But we have the issue that is not a new issue in the community, but maybe new to the country, largely right. because of cell phones and video right. that people right. now exactly. see about police community relations. Mm-hmm. 
uh, Chicago's been a flare point. Other cities have as mm-hmm. well now. Uh, what? How many? Uh, what do we do about it? I guess is what is my question. You've worked closely with the police mm-hmm. on your anti-violence. Mm-hmm. Stuff. You're close to the new superintendent. Superintendent. Yes, great respect for him, uh, Eddie Johnson. But uh, there's this huge gulf between the community and police, and it strikes me that the same communities that need strong policing are also the ones who've Most been victimized, divided, right. uh, victimized. By, some, uh, by these incidents, and it's creating a situation where the community is much less safe. Absolutely. I, I think um, I've never seen the relations between law enforcement and community worse than I see them right now across the board, not just with young people, but with adults, um, with elders. There's this total mistrust. I think part of that has been, like you said, you know, things have been going on for years, but now I always say I wrote my first column at the Hyde Park Herald 43 years ago about Ralph Metcalf (laughs) and Mayor Daley clashing over police brutality. Brutality, yeah. And here we are, except now everybody has a camera on them, and everybody now it's becoming visual. And I think that the other part of it is I think that because there was so much not being done about the brutality, you know, where we had the, the Burge cases of, of torture by police here in Chicago and the rest, I think that was going on for so long that um, now the, ex- the, the, the exposing of it has some people said, you know what, enough. Uh, and, and it's still going on. And I think part of that, they developed a culture in the department that it was acceptable because they knew it was the way police work was done on a lot of, with a lot of police officers and a lot of uh, police commanders. It was, it was an acceptable way of policing at that time. Also, we got to remember, though, law enforcement has always been the enforcer of the worst of things. Whether it was from slavery, whether it was civil rights, and the police, the Bull Connors and the police in this country, they enforced segregation. They enforced racism. That was their job, to enforce the culture of the land of that time and the laws of segregation and racism. So we jump forward, and we still have a culture of, of racism in America. And you can't just tell the police department, now we could change all this culture overnight. There has to be a retraining. There has to be a reprogramming of how we, how we police. And I say, you know, we can talk that community policing is the new form, but that isn't often what new what police officers have been trained to do on the streets. Right. It's also expensive. I mean, it, yes. it costs money to take the time to have more police in the community, to for them to be out of their cars, to be, and you know, part of what's going on here is that because of all the budgetary problems. There is an adequate resource. You must have talked. You must talk to the superintendent about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, the the budget is is horrible. We're short on police, um, but we're also spending an awful lot of money on settlements because of police yeah, brutality. Right. Um, that I think we have to wake up to. But I think, I think what the Eddie Johnson is doing in Chicago and has happened across this country is that people are not going to begin to try to, every time you try to build that bridge and another video comes out of another, like, you know, Paul Neal in Chicago a couple of weeks ago shot in the back, unarmed. And all over the country. And I mean, it's we happening should, all over the country. You know. Exactly, yeah. This is not, this is an American issue we got to deal with, not just Chicago. Uh, Chicago, but it is, we got to deal with it here in Chicago. And I think one of the things that Eddie Johnson is seeking to do is to say, on my watch, this is not going to be tolerated. You know, he just, today you know, is releasing um, uh, firing of some police officers. Seven police officers who filed false reports, false he reports said, with in the McDonald. shooting of Laquan McDonald. And, and, and I think that's going to – it does two things, David. I think number one is it sends a message to all police. You do this kind of stuff, you're going to be fired. I'm, this is not going to be towered in my regime. There's no cover-up going on under this. On the other hand, it sends a message to the community, I'm going to hold bad police accountable. So we can't begin to come to the table to build the bridge if there has not been accountability on both sides. What I, you know, what I scream and howl all the time is that if you shoot and kill somebody in Chicago, whether you are a cop or you are a brother on the corner, you have to go to jail. So we have to have that accountability that's going to be on both sides. And until there's an even playing field, we can't sit down and talk. Of course, the, the, the distinction is that 
police officers have certain powers or given certain powers and probably have to have certain powers absolutely. in order to do their job. So the but accountability with co- it. The complica- absolutely. Mm-hmm. The complicated issue is, absolutely. Is, is policing that. And so what is a justifiable shooting, what is not? And as you pointed out, there are elements of police contracts and so on that insulate police officers from accountability. Absolutely. There has been some of the bargaining agreements on police, not just in Chicago, but in places around this country, have them some of the most protective people. We were talking about this the other day. I was on, on, a, on a radio show and talking about the fact that, you know, a, a lawyer, a doctor um, can be fined for uh, they have to take out a license and they have to, you know they can be fined for breaking their 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 code of ethics but we don't have that for the police department there's been a lot of covering up of that and i think there's been a there has been a approach that um in in rough communities where there's violence you come out rough and i i think we got to do a retraining well we just we we said yeah absolutely and we ought to acknowledge that's hard because oh, we, we 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 said a few minutes ago these are like war zones absolutely so you're sending people in they have families they right. have they have uh you know they have the same concerns as everyone else and they and we're asking them not just to police but to to minister to all these other problems that you Mentioned. It's a hard job. And it's gotten harder because the reality is, in at least in the state of Illinois, and I'm sure it's other states in, in, in the country, where you've had all these budget cuts, so the resources for counseling, the resources for mental health, the resources for support are gone. They've been wiped out. Yes. You know, And I know particularly in Illinois, uh, the governor here has wiped out all those kind of resources. And now you don't have those means and those support systems, those safety networks. Plus, you have broken communities and, and fractured communities. And you have the, the, the people are in a rage. People are angry. You know, I watch people come into our church office sometimes, just mad and angry and cussing. And it's got to try to de-escalate them. And, have, you know, my, my office secretary has to de-escalate them as much as possible and, down, and to try to talk. Because people are angry. You're angry when you're poor. You're angry when you feel you got no hope. You're angry when you don't what you're gonna. You have nothing to eat today, or nothing to feed your family. So that anger bursts out, particularly if somebody's coming. But if somebody's coming to you and then treating you unfairly or walking out of a car calling you an MF, now that anger hits and that you have these explosive situations. Yeah. So I believe, and I've been saying this, David, for the last three years. And every one of our schools, private, parochial, public, from preschool to senior and high school, we should be teaching conflict resolution. And we should also be teaching it in the police department so that we are, are taught different ways to handle it. Because we live in a society that does, look what's going on in the election. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we live in a society that's very hostile and very mean. You know, we talked about... Uh, Police accountability. I, I, you know, I think all the time about, and you deal with this day to day. This loss. I don't know how many funerals you preside over as a result of just did one yesterday. But that story about the little boy, Hmm. the nine-year-old boy who was lured off of a playground and was assassinated in an alley because his father was a gangbanger. His basketball was right beside his Mm -hmm. body. And, um, you know, I, I, I fully, fully accept and believe that we need to deal with the police issue and police community mm-hmm. relations. But I grieve for that child just as I grieve yeah. for Laquan McDonald. And, uh, and you talk about codes of silence. It took weeks for someone to step forward and identify the shooter yeah. in that case. Uh, how, how do you discourage those codes of silence? Well... That's why it's so important that we rebuild this bridge because if people don't trust the police, they're never going to talk. I've had a number. We put out you know, rewards of $5,000 for somebody to come forward information, and we've probably given out 23, 24 of them over the last you know, 10 or 11 years, but oftentimes it's a person coming to the church and giving the information and trying with the police officer there, they feel like they don't want to go to the police station today. They don't want them their name being put out there on the street. There, there's fear, and I understand the fear. Um, I understand the fear of code of silence in the police department. I understand it in the street. It's the reality. But fear is either going to polarize us 
and 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 consume us with fear, or it's going to motivate us to say, let's do something about it. Because that nine nine year old boy, eight year old boy, Tyshawn Lee, executed in an alley. And I keep wondering, when's the tipping point? I'm saying, you know what? The community says, enough. And every time I think we're going to have the tipping point, whether it's Blair Holt or Terrell Bosley or, or, or um, uh, a Tyshawn Lee or whoever, we just get to another level. That that was, to me, one of the lowest of lowest. You can't, years ago, I was chaplain. I was in the seminary for the county jail. You couldn't go to jail and have killed a child. Your life was at risk in that jail. It was a code of ethics in the jail, some things you just didn't do. And now it's okay on the street. So, you know, we put out the rewards. Um, we try to get people to come forward and talk, and we're seeing some of it, but there's a lot of fear, and there's a lot of people just paralyzed by it's. we can't change it, so we just got to live with it. And when we get to that point and we feel we got to live with this, right. we've lost. It's over with. Yeah. For everybody, you, um, I want I want you to leave me with some uh, a sense of hope here. <laughs> uh, what what you you you're you're on the front lines of all of this. Um, what 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 gives you hope that it it will change? Well, you know, first uh, I gotta say, I'm a, you know, I'm a person of faith, so I'm a prisoner of hope. Um, I believe with all my heart, soul, and mind that. Truth wins. Um, love wins. Peace wins. Justice wins. I no, I never questioned that for a moment. Um, they win, and we got to keep holding on to that and not compromising that and not giving in to the fact, the feeling like it can't win. But I also think we got we got to live with what Dr. King I think so taught us all, um, and I think the scriptures and and the Torah and and the um, and the Quran, I think, teach us. We live today in this really selfish, self-centered society, where we got to see things change now. We got to see it fixed now. We got to how we can handle this now, and we got to move back to that point. I think that that our books of faith teach us is this is a marathon race. So, David or Mike carry the baton for now, and I do everything I can. I might not see peace where a child's not afraid to go to school in my day but i do everything i can in my day so down the line some child is not going to be afraid to go to school because i did my part we've got to rebuild a society that cares about the long term and not what i see right now sure Mm -hmm. we want some wins now but we plant the tree somebody else is going to eat fruit off of and it's okay i don't have to see it i just know it's going to happen because i'm going to do my part we each got to do our part with the belief and and the and the absolute understanding, this will change if we all do our part. Um, and I know I'm going to have a piece of the puzzle and the change, and we all are. The 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 problem with the long I agree with you that mm-hmm. we need to take a long term view and commit ourselves for the mm-hmm. long term. In the short term, there can be a lot of heartbroken yeah. parents. And there's going to be a lot of pain, and, sisters and there's and going to be a lot of tears. And I'll tell you what, what keeps me going when I see the tears and see the pain and get overwhelmed is I go to a playground or I go in my school and I see a little child and I see all their dreams and excitement and their laughter. And I say, we've got to keep going because that child deserves to reach his or her dreams. And we got to do what we got to do to make it happen. Well, Father Flager, I appreciate your efforts to bring us to that point uh, to fight guns as well as mm. gun violence, uh, drugs, to try and give people opportunity. You've committed your life to that, and uh, uh, you you uh, represent, I think, what uh, what people of faith uh, look to. Uh, I appreciate that. I think you're one of my heroes, so I appreciate that. I thank you. I appreciate you being here. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.